All right, I hope everybody ate well at Thanksgiving. Everybody ate well. Don't raise your hand if you didn't eat well. Um, but I don't know if you were like me, but at, this was bizarre. We're sitting around our, our table eating, and we were eating really good food, talking about really good food. Anybody else do that? <laughs> it, was, it was bizarre. And I think, uh, I think you know, uh, our phones are always listening, so it's not surprising in my news, uh, in my feed, that, uh, that every ad or everything that came up for the next few days was about food, weirdly about like healthy food. I don't know why they, they think I'm into healthy food, but uh, maybe as an alternative to what I ate at Thanksgiving. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of information out there about healthy foods, whether it's, you know, blueberries, you know, eat, eat more blueberries, eat more kale, eat more chia seeds, uh, whatever those things are. Um, you know, for a while, eggs were bad for you. Remember that? Our eggs were good for you. Then they were bad for you. And now they're good for you again. Um, so coffee's always good for you, regardless of any article you ever read. It is from the Lord. Amen. So what we're looking at today is about what makes Jesus's body healthy, right? How do you, how do you tell if a church, local church, but also just the church as a whole is actually healthy and Jesus's body is healthy? And this entire chapter uh, that we are looking at chapter, uh, we're not looking at the whole chapter, but turning into chapter four and through the rest of the book really pictures about what, it, what a healthy church looks like. And this is a particular shift in the book. If you read the whole book, you notice this shift in chapter four. And it, uh, it, it's more than just the words, therefore, the, the second word Paul says, therefore, um, but there's a shift in language. In the original language, there are 41 imperatives in the book of Ephesians. Now, to, to, for those of you that weren't English majors, uh, an imperative is a command, right? In, in English, an indicative indicates what is. So if I said, um, you are listening to my sermon, that's an indicative message. If I say, listen to my sermon, that's an imperative. So listen to my sermon, okay? Uh, that's a command. So we feel the weight of that. Well, what's interesting about the book of Ephesians is there are 41 imperatives in the book, one of them in chapters one through three. So the rest of the book, the next three chapters, four, five, and six, have 41 imperatives. And the reason for that is Paul is trying to um, very carefully root us in gospel theology, gospel belief, and now gospel living, acting, so that we don't go out here and do these things not out of the root of who we are in Christ. So I'm going to read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I encourage you to follow along. When I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this is the turning point in Ephesians. I like uh, Jenny Allen puts it this way in chapters one through three. God tells us that, quote, this is who you are. This is what I've done for you. This is how much you are loved. Then in chapters four through six, he shows us how to relate to the world and how to live that out. But what we tend to try to do is to try to live out without understanding who we are and the power and the beauty of the love of God for us. And so what I, I want to make sure we get, 
again, just reiterate, and we'll try to do this every week, is that these aren't commands devoid of the gospel. These grow out of the gospel for us. There's always a tendency in, in us to press into, oh, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Instead of rooting it, who am I and who should I be? Um, so Paul begins with, therefore, which is, again, the sign of, of the transition in the book. He's pulling everything from one through three. He says, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. The word urge here is not, you know, I urge you to consider getting a new cell phone plan. That's how we might use the word urge. That's not the word urge here. The word urge here means implore or exhort or urge strongly. So he's, he's, he's sliding some weight in behind this. Live a life that's worthy. He's bringing up, uh, this, this is an interesting word in the original language. It, it means to bring up the other balance scale. So what it means is if you put the calling that Christ has put on us being, uh, being made new, being born again into his family as part of his body on one side, then our lives should balance that, should, should be equivalent, should reflect the weight of that. It's, you could use the word appropriate. I urge you to live a life that's appropriate to the calling to which you've been called. You know, as a parent, uh, your goal uh, is not to raise your child to be dependent on you. Your goal is to raise a child that becomes a fully functioning, God-honoring, wise, and yes, independent adult. I think too many parents don't understand that that's the purpose. Not to teach your child ultimately to be completely dependent on you, but to teach, help them to grow, to become healthy, God-honoring, wise, and capable adults. In many ways, this whole chapter is about Christians in the new, their new life, and the church stepping into being God-honoring, wise, and capable as followers of Christ. Two ways that we see this in this week's passage. Next week, we'll, we'll continue on in this, uh, picking up in verse 7 and following. Uh, but this week, there's two ways that, that we're to reflect this worthy walk. The first is walk with Christ's attitude towards each other. The second is walk in the Spirit's unity with each other. So the first, Paul says, is calling us to walk with Christ's attitude towards each other. I don't know if anybody knows this. If you're not a parent, maybe you're not aware. Babies are self-absorbed. They are, right? All they can do is think of themselves. Uh, and, and they're self-centered. They can't stop and think about the pressure that mom's facing today or dad, right? No, no sense of that. They, when they want something, they want it now. There's no consideration for other people. Not once did my, my, my children, when they were babies, uh, look up and say, uh, I'd like to eat now, but if it's not a good time, I can wait. Right? No, they're very demanding. Now, 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 me, me, me. Spiritual babies are the same way. Now listen, it's okay to be a spiritual baby if you're a new Christian, right? You're not expected to be mature. That's why Peter says we should crave, a new Christian should crave the pure spiritual milk of the word, 1 Peter 2, 2. But, but there is a growth that needs to happen. We got some babies in here. I love this is a family, family uh, uh, gathering today, so no COA kids. So we got the kids in here. Love the kids, right? Love these beautiful kids. But something's wrong if one of them in 25 years is sitting on a mat in the floor in the back of the service playing with toys, right? Something either is developmentally wrong with the child or something is really wrong with the parents, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe both. <laughs> but nobody would say that's normal. 
No, there's something wrong. So, so there's a sense that uh, of a child growing. There's a sense that we are to grow into uh, living out this worthy life. One of the ways that a Christian matures is how they view others, just like a human being. It's one thing for a newborn baby to be self-absorbed, right? It's another thing for a 25-year-old to be just as self-absorbed, not healthy, right? They're not going to have healthy relationships. They're not going to have a healthy uh, job uh, a culture, an atmosphere. So Paul, Paul pulls us out of ourselves and pushes us towards being uh, grace-centered and, and other-centered. So he gives these virtues here. Look at what he says in verse two. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility is a noun that conveys lowliness or a position, a, a lowly position. It's a quality that was not valued in the Greek world of Jesus' time. It's not, like, um, it, it's not like this was cheered on in their world. And in fact, humility was seen as weakness and, and similar to servility. It was, a, it, was a, it was kind of pathetic, right? Somebody who was humble was pathetic in their culture. And yet, Paul is saying we are called to this, to this humility. Humility, in the next virtue, Paul attaches the word all to it but you can, you can circle if you've got your journal Bible, um, as though to emphasize all uh, that, that a touch of this is not to suffice, right? Um, anybody, you met anybody who's slightly humble? Somebody who's slightly humble is what? Mostly not humble. <laughs> so, so it's a calling to, that, that, that you're to add to it, that you're to uh, pursue, you're to um, not settle for being somewhat humble. It's meant to be a path you're on, something you're growing in. And the reason we can do this is because Jesus is our example of humility. If anyone who has ever walked this earth should have not been humble, but should have walked around barking orders, just telling everyone what to do and having people serve, on, serve him hand and foot, it should have been Jesus, right? But what did Jesus do? Well, let's start with where he was born. Where This is Advent, right? So where was Jesus born? In a manger, right? Now, let's pause for a moment. Do you think the God of the universe was just running out of places? He was looking down. He's like, what? that palace is full. Oh, that hotel is full. Man, that Airbnb is, is jam-packed. Let me see, where can I have my son be born? He could have had him born in the most beautiful place, opulent palace on planet earth at that point, but he didn't. Why? Because God was demonstrating something in the humility of Christ. If Christ was that humble, then we should be humble like him. Now, humble humility is not self-hatred. So don't take it for that. People who, who are always tearing themselves down, belittling themselves, and, and are full of self-hatred are not humble. They're actually prideful. Now, what do I mean by that? Who are they thinking about most? Themselves. You know, one pastor defined humility this way. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You know, when you actually are humble is when you're not thinking about being humble. <laughs> it's when you're thinking about other people. So this, this is where he connects us here. Um, and well, before I get to that, I would argue that I said this last week, we are being formed to not be humble people. We can't be humble people because we're being formed by our culture and by our phones to be self-absorbed. There is no 
There, there is antithetical relationship between self-absorption and humility. You can't be self-absorbed and humble. And so I'm saying you, you need to be aware that you're being discipled by our culture and by our phones to think of yourself and what you want all the time. So Paul adds to this, gentleness. This is the quality, uh, one, one definition of, of this in the original language of the word is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. So basically gentleness is, means that you're, you're the type of a person that approaches other people in a way that's disarming. That's very, that's, that no one, no one feels you're coming down on them from above, but that you're approaching them with a, a humility. I would argue that's why Paul put these two together, all humility and gentleness. Um, it, means, it does not suggest weakness, but characterizes the person who doesn't need to assert or dominate. They're not touchy, resentful, or retaliatory. How can we be gentle? Well, again, we look to Jesus. In his landmark book, I think one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life, I would argue, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you have not read it, I would highly recommend it. He said, lowly gentleness is not one way Jesus occasionally acts towards others. Gentleness is who he is. It is his heart. Why did little children think that they could approach the Son of God? Because he was so gentle. They thought they were welcome because they were. Patience. More precise Translation would be steadfast, or what the King James Version does, long-suffering. <laughs> we don't like that one, do we? <laughs> long-suffering. We like to think about patience. That's a nice word, but not long-suffering. But that's what it literally means in the original language. It's the ability to bear or up or persevere under difficult circumstances. Why do you need patience? Because doing life with other people, other brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't super 100% mature all the time in Christ, means you're going to need to be patient. You're going to need to be patient with each other. And ironically, it's something we all want from other people, right? Anybody met someone who's like, no, I just don't like people when they're patient for, with me. We all want patience. And what Paul is saying here, is calling us to, is a life worthy of the gospel, worthy of what we've been called to, is a life where we're, where God has been patient towards us, so we're, then we're able to be patient towards each other. Listen, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? What is the first description? Love is patient, right? It's the picture of love. If you struggle with patience, I don't know if anybody else does. I do. Um, take time to reflect and meditate on God. Take time to reflect and meditate on how patient God is with you and with humanity as a whole. It will help stretch your patience. Bearing with one another in love. This is a, a, an interesting phrase. Bearing with one another. Why? Why? I, I, I had to like, as I was reflecting on and, and studying this this week, I was, why doesn't it just say, Love one another. Wouldn't that capture it? But this idea of bearing with one another means something, points to something very important that we, we don't need to miss. There's a cost 
There's a cost to bearing with one another in love. The reason is because relationships are hard. Relationships are difficult. Even in the church, yes, we will. And, and, and there's a temptation in every one of us that when we get hurt or when something's really difficult is to rip the cord and jump out, right? Pull the cord, get out of the relationship. But what Jesus is calling us to here is pressing in because we will hurt each other. We will fail each other. We will let each other down. And here's the thing. Sometimes it'll be accidental, but occasionally it's on purpose. Occasionally, somebody's just mean because in that moment they want to be mean. They didn't say something accidentally that hurt you. They said something intentional that hurt you. They did something intentional that hurt you. And it will require something of you to not pull out of that relationship. We can do this because of Jesus. Remember Peter betraying Jesus, right? Peter, Peter, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, or the night Jesus was arrested, betrayed him, denied him three times, right? Even after being told, you're going to deny me three times, and he swore he never would, he denied Jesus three times. You know there's a lot of guilt in that. There was a lot of shame in that. But what did Jesus do when he saw him? He restored him. Two reasons for that. One is to show Peter that he had not outsinned the grace of Jesus. He'd not outsend the grace of Jesus. And the second was to show Peter that he was willing to pay the cost of his betrayal. Are we willing to pay the cost of bearing with one another in love? Again, gentle and lowly, the book, uh, Dane Ortland says, Jesus does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loved to the end. This is the love we're called to. This is the life worthy of the gospel because the gospel is how we've experienced all of these things and are experiencing all of these things. And this is what should mark the church and make it utterly unique as a community in this world because we love like Jesus. We are humble like Jesus. We are patient like Jesus. We are gentle like Jesus. We bear with one another like Jesus bears with us. And that's going to look weird to the world. All of this because of Jesus. So we're, walk, we're to walk uh, like Jesus with each other, with Christ's attitude with each other. Secondly, we walk in the Spirit's unity with each other. Look at what Paul says in verse uh, 5, or sorry, um, in the, uh, verse 3. Eager to maintain, he says. Eager to maintain the unity. Eager, zealous, passionate. Does that describe you? Does that describe the way that you pursue uh, the unity, to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It doesn't say find it, grasp it, create it, gain it. He says, keep it. Keep it. Why? Because unity is not something we achieve. It's something Jesus achieved on the cross for us. Think about your hand for just a moment if you want to hold it up and look at it. 
you, you didn't unify your hand, right? You realize that, like growing up, your mom didn't say, okay, make sure your hand stays together today, right? What happened to your hand? Your hand grew naturally because it was wired to grow together. Now, you better maintain the unity of your hand. You get that? <laughs> you have that responsibility. You don't want to go chopping off fingers, stuff like that. It's bad. The unity is there. It's yours then to maintain and live out. Unity is something the church already has in Christ. The unity and love we have for one another is a natural, organic response to the gospel. We get the gospel, we are unified. It's only when we forget the gospel that, that the unity is threatened. So why do we have, so if we may, we're called to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, what breaks that? Well, he's already told us. When I'm not humble, when I'm not willing to humble myself before you, when I am not gentle with you, when you're not gentle with me, when I am not patient, where we don't, aren't patient, we aren't bearing with one another in love, then, then the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace is, is, is fractured. It's minimized. It's demeaned. It's not destroyed, but it is strained. But if we're unified in the gospel and we operate out of the gospel with each other, then then, then we grow into something beautiful and powerful. Ephesians 2, verse 22, Paul, we saw this a few weeks ago. Paul said, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's something crazy that happens when we, when we live out of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of, the, of peace. The, the God dwells in us, with us, through us, to each other. There's something that happens that can't happen otherwise. And then Paul begins a beautiful description of the grounds here uh, connected in the gospel of how we are unified. Now, if you have your journal Bible, you can circle the recurring word that shows up. I'll let you guess which one that is. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Real subtle, isn't he? What's, what's he trying to emphasize here? One. Seven times he uses the word one. This isn't about, you know, one, there, there's a, um, a pressure in our culture, and I would argue it's demonic, that says uh, unity means kind of holding your beliefs loosely so everyone can be included. That's not what this text is talking about, is it? Now, on, on secondary things, on on. on uh, things that aren't primary, yeah, we hold those things loosely that we might be unified. But what he lists here are primary things, the things you're not supposed to, to hold loosely. In fact, you're supposed to hold firmly and stand firmly in these things and then hold yourself loosely. Be humble, be patient, be gentle, be bearing with one another in love. So he says one body. We share a common experience of being born into the same Body, which is Christ's church. Romans 12, 5 says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. doesn't matter how you feel about it. You are, in essence, intrinsically part of the body of Christ if you are a Christian. We are one spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't subdivided out to individuals. It is unified and, and given to individuals. We have one hope. We're people marked by hope. 
It's not that our careers will go great. It's not that our, we'll all have families and grandchildren and we'll all die in our 90s in our sleep. That's not our hope. Our hope is that one day Christ is going to break forth into this world, ushering in the eternal kingdom of God and a new heavens and new earth and sin will be done and all that is broken and every injustice will be undone. That's the hope. And when we fix our eyes on that together, there's an inherent unity that happens. We have one Lord. The early church would confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And they did that as a, as a, uh, a, a, a rebellion against the idea that Caesar is Lord. And they did it to their own detriment. They did that to the point of dying for that faith. That believed that Jesus Christ is Lord in a culture that saw Caesar as Lord and a thousand other things as Lord. They chose to say, we believe Jesus is Lord. And we as a church and and every church that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, we have an inherent unity with them. It's a confession that unites us. And it's a confession, he says, one faith. When you confess Jesus as Lord, you're making a statement of faith that unites you. Listen, with every believer across the earth, and across all of time. One faith, one baptism. We are baptized into Christ through one baptism. It's one of the reasons we practice baptism as conversion, after conversion, as it's modeled in the New Testament. Listen, the reason, one of the reasons for this is it doesn't matter what family you were born into. You could have been the most godly family on earth. You could have been the born as far from God physically or, or theoretically or spiritually as could be. But if you come into the family, we're all baptized into the family equally. Next Sunday, we're going to have a baptism service. So if you've never been baptized, it's an opportunity for you to see what that means. And Paul sums it up. He says, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. The question here, then, looking at this passage is not, how do we get unity? But more, actually, how can we be divided? What can divide us from this? A mature, when you look at these, this picture, it is the unity of the church being built up and, and spread out in mission. Every one of these things has to do with a person coming to faith in Christ. The moment that they become a Christian, they have all of these things in common with all people, which means that next Sunday or even today, if somebody in this room who is not a Christian prays and puts their faith in Christ, repents of their sins and puts their faith in Christ, they're now unified. They're now, they have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is all in all and through all, right? They are part of that. And a mature Christian understands that they're part of something bigger than themselves. This is why I, listen, I know we need all kinds of churches to reach all kinds of people, so I'm not, I'm not knocking other church, every other church or whatever, but it, it drives me crazy when churches feel like they, when churches buy into the idea that they're the local dispenser of religious goods and services, and therefore we should have the best program. And if we have the best program, the shiniest this and the best that and the whatever this and that, then everybody will come. They'll get really excited about what we're doing. And I'm like, no, that's not how, that's, that's not what we're, we're, we're inviting people into. We're inviting people into being the largest, the largest, most globally diverse movement of humanity the world has ever seen. Jesus' church. Now, in that, I'm not against having quality stuff, but I think that when we feed the idea of this being about you, 
We want to make this, we want to curtail, we want to frame this, make this perfect for you. And what does that do in you? I didn't really like the sermon today. Well, that song really didn't, didn't, it just didn't connect with me that well. I'm sorry, was this for you? Is this for you or is this for God? Are we about God here or are we about us? Because we're about us, then let's start complaining about everything. It's hot in here right now. I'm ready to pass out, seriously. I could turn the heat off, I would, I'd open a window. But it's not about me right now, right? And maybe I'm generating a lot of hot air with this, but, but it's not about me. And as long as I think it's about me, I am, I am separating myself from the church, right? I'm creating disunity. If you're in Christ, he's inviting us, he's calling us all into walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called to. And I want to ask you today, are you humble? Are you gentle? Are you patient with others? Do you bear with others in love? Do you press into unity or do you press into what you want? Do you live this out in a worthy way, the calling that you've been called to? We're going to move into our time of response and I want to invite you you're a Christian to repent because this calling and this passage is higher than any of us, right? To live in this way, to love in this way, to serve in this way. Only Jesus in me over time, growing, maturing, making me more like him can make me look even remotely look like that. But he's inviting you today to take another step, repent, turn away, take another step in obedience, in faith, in a life that's worthy. If you're not a Christian, he's inviting you today to put your faith in him. To experience what it means to be a part of this one body. We're going to do something a little different today. I did something different last week, so why not do it again this week? If you weren't here last week, I had people kneel. It's crazy. You guys all, most of you did it. A little surprised, to be honest. But, uh, But today, just to demonstrate the unity that we have as a people physically, what I want us to do is I'm going to have you stand and we're going to slide over kind of close to each other. Now listen, if you're comfortable with hands, put your hand out to hold someone's hand. If you're not comfortable with hands because of COVID, you just put your elbow out. Totally fine. Here's our chance to love each other, right? Not why didn't she stick his hand up? Why didn't she put her elbow up? You know, like just do what's comfortable for you and the person next to you will respond in like to you, Right? So let's, let's do that. Go ahead and stand up. Let's move towards each other. Elbows, hands, whatever you need to do. Here, whatever you feel comfortable with, put, your, put it out and the other person will meet you halfway or vice versa. We are one body in Christ. We are part of his global church today. This little tiny group of people, us holding hands in this moment is a symbol of something greater and more beautiful than you could possibly imagine the church of Jesus Christ unified around the globe this morning through him, through one spirit, one faith, one Lord, one God and Father over all, who's in all and through all. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did this. That even though we physically just moved towards each other as a symbol, Lord, there's something deeper, more profound, something eternal that unites us together, and that is Jesus. And today we come 
recognizing that we have not always served this unity. We have not always maintained this unity. We have been selfish. We have not been gentle. We have not been kind at moments. We have been, uh, we've wanted our way. We repent of this. We lay this before you. We ask you to renew us, restore us. Give us a greater vision, a greater heart, a greater zeal to maintain the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. And as we prepare to take communion and we think of the body and the blood of Christ broken and spilled out for us, it is for us together. Not just us individually, but us together. Jesus, you died for your church. As we take communion, may we remember what you have done. For your glory, for our good, we pray. Amen.